Catskill. Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, farming is hard work for anyone, but people of color face even greater challenges when it comes to agriculture. To learn more, Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton spoke with Amawale Adewale, co-owner of Liberation Farm in Delaware County, about his farm and his experience being denied a USDA loan. It's Friday, and Dan Hoost is here from Sullivan County Government with news out of Monticello, including early voting dates and sample ballots for the April 2nd presidential primaries. Plus, Driftwood the Band, formed by two high school students bent on traveling the country playing folk music together. We'll talk to one of the band members in advance of their performance at the Walton Theater stage tomorrow night. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says he's announcing more than 500 new sanctions on Russia. This is linked to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and last week's death in prison of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Biden says the sanctions will target people connected with Navalny's imprisonment and force Russian President Vladimir Putin to pay a steep price. This includes targeting Russia's core financial institutions. One of them is an essential payment service widely used in Russia. More than two dozen entities and people from other countries are sanctioned as well. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer arrived in the city of Lviv today to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh reports the visit comes as aid to Ukraine is stalled in Congress. Schumer said his visit was to show U.S. support for the country as it marks two years at war with Russia. Earlier this month, the Senate approved a $95 billion foreign aid package that included roughly $60 billion for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson has not said whether he would take up the bill. A large bloc in his Republican Party opposes any more assistance for Ukraine. Schumer said when he returns to Washington, he will make it clear to the Speaker what is at stake in Ukraine and for the rest of the world. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. More fertility clinics in Alabama are suspending their IVF services. That comes after the Alabama Supreme Court declared this week frozen embryos are children. This could jeopardize the clinic's legal status. People in the process of receiving IVF have had their medical treatment stalled. Alabama resident Tori Beasley is a patient who was scheduled to have an embryo transfer next month. How does someone else get to dictate what I say, what I, what I want for my family? Meanwhile, a Republican state senator in Alabama is introducing a new bill. This would define an embryo as a viable life only after it has been implanted in a uterus. Stocks opened higher this morning, extending a big rally on Thursday. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped about 140 points in early trading. The Dow closed at a record high on Thursday, topping 39,000 for the first time. All the major indexes were up thanks to excitement over artificial intelligence, sparked by chipmaker NVIDIA's latest earnings report, which was even better than forecasters had expected. Live Nation also reported strong results this week thanks to record sales of concert tickets. The company says it expects that strong demand for live music to continue through this year. Several Federal Reserve officials say they're in no hurry to lower interest rates as they try to sort through sometimes conflicting signals about the U.S. economy. Minutes from the last Fed meeting show more policymakers worried about cutting rates too soon and perhaps rekindling inflation than about waiting too long. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now up 150 points. This is NPR. It's been a week since a New York jury got the corruption case against officials with the National Rifle Association. Among other charges, jurors have been asked to decide whether former NRA director Wayne LaPierre wrongly took millions of dollars for lavish personal spending. Supporters of the gun rights group claim that New York Attorney General Letitia James is pursuing a political agenda. As South Carolina Republicans look ahead to the end of primary voting tomorrow, many residents of former Governor Nikki Haley's hometown say they are rooting for her. As NPR Sarah McCammon reports, Haley faces a tough primary fight against former President Donald Trump in her home state. 
Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has often talked about growing up in Bamberg, and she visited the town of about 3,000 during a campaign swing earlier this month. Bamberg Mayor Nancy Foster says many people here are hoping she defies the odds. It puts Bamberg on the map. (laughs) So we're excited for her, and we hope she makes it. Haley's campaign says she raised more than $16 million last month, even as she trails Trump in the polls. Haley says she'll continue campaigning at least through Super Tuesday, regardless of Saturday results in her home state. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Bamberg, South Carolina. Most hospitals in South Korea have gone on high alert. That's because trainee doctors in South Korea have gone on strike. They're opposed to a South Korean government plan to increase the number of physicians in medical school. The trainee doctors say that they are campaigning for higher wages. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. And the listeners who support this NPR station. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. It's Friday, and that means Dan Hoost is here from Sullivan County Government. He's the communications director. Happy Friday, Dan. Hello, happy Friday to you, Tim. Happy Friday. Happy, what was, it, it snowed, it rained, it frozen, snow, no, it it's be, and now it's it going to be 47. It didn't we got, we got everything stuff. in 24 hours. <laughs> yes, we did. It's Sullivan County. There, welcome to the Casca. Yeah. <laughs> um, and welcome to election season. The first thing we're going to talk about um, is the fact that uh, early voting dates are coming up and the sample ballots for the April 2nd presidential primaries. Let's talk about the timeline here. Yeah, the first part of our local involvement in the upcoming presidential election is coming up very soon here. We actually have a presidential primary coming on April 2nd. We also have early voting dates ahead of that, and uh, now you can mail in votes as well. We have sample ballots that I just posted on the county website yesterday, and they were interesting and instructive to me. And sample ballots, these are not things you can fill out and send in or bring with you to the polling place. This is just for you to see what an official ballot may look like, but they are not official ballots. However, they are downloadable. You can print them out. You can zoom in on them, whatever you you want to do. I'm zooming in on one right now, actually, because the Republican uh, presidential primary actually has names on it of people who are no longer in contention but dropped out after the deadline for uh, the ballots needing to be printed. So we've got Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, and Chris Christie on the Republican presidential primary ballot. But the, at this point, the only contest right now really is between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, of course. And then on the Democratic side, uh, I didn't realize this, but uh, there are other um, Democratic candidates for president besides the incumbent Joe Biden. There's a Marianne Williamson and a Dean Phillips. I think Marianne dropped out. Did she? she suspended hers. Okay. Yeah. Did yeah. she? All mm-hmm. right. Yeah. See, I didn't even know who they were. Um, but that ballot happens to also have uh, choices for delegates to the Democratic uh, uh, National Convention, uh, which includes, uh, well, the, Ann Hart is the Democratic Party chair for Sullivan County. There's a Shauna Black, a Daniel Torrier, a Patricia Giltner, and a Timoth- or no, Timothy Perfetti a Max Delapia and a Wanda Hayek. Um, only name I recognize is Anne, but um, hopefully some folks who are going out to vote in these primaries will uh, do a little bit of homework on that. We don't provide um, candidate information beyond that on the website. We, we're not endorsing or stumping for any particular candidate, and there should be information out there Uh, But these sample ballots are very handy to take a look at before you go to the polls so you know what you're going to be voting on. So, And just to be clear, this is the April 2nd presidential primary election for New York. Uh, Right. And that is uh, before the the June primary, which is for the the state level. Right. Yes. And and local level. Yep. And uh, only these presidential primaries are on the June primary may have... Folks who are primarily registered in another party like conservative or independents, that they, they may have a chance to vote. But this upcoming presidential primary is just for people who are either registered Democrats or registered Republicans. And both Democrat and Republicans are on the ballot here in the state for that 
presidential primary. Mm -hmm. Unlike some other states that have separate dates for different parties. But in New York, that's what happens on April 2nd. There are early polling uh, places as well. There are polling places as well uh, for that. Let's the polling locations, as well as the early voting. On April 2nd, I imagine all our polling spots that are usually open in Sullivan County will be open. However, you can vote early in person if you would like, uh, starting on March 23rd and then running every day through March 30th at either the Government Center on North Street there in Monticello, or as we debuted last year, took quite a bit of success, actually, our public health department office, it's the Gladys Olmstead building at 50 Community Lane in Liberty. That's near the care center. It's on our social services campus. I tell people, take a left uh, at the sign off Sunset Lake Road and just keep following that driveway as it curves around up the hill and you, you'll make it to public health. We'll have signage out there. Um, it'll be different times on different days. For example, on Saturdays and Sundays, the 23rd, 24th, and the 29th and 30th, or excuse me, 23rd, 24th, and 30th, it's 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, but on other days, we actually open up at 8 a.m. And then there are certain days during the week that we go from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. And this is really just to accommodate people who have different working hours so that they can go early vote if they want. And the more we offer it, the more popular it becomes. People find it very convenient. And to vote in the April 2nd presidential primary election, you need to already be registered. Right. Uh, however, for the June 25th primary, which is for New York State, the registration deadline moves until you could register yes. up until June 15th yep. yeah, for that. Yeah, you still have time for that. And then mm-hmm. for the general election in November, mm-hmm. there's another date that's even further out. And so we have that, opportunities all for those that. dates on the website, SullivanNY.us slash department slash elections, or just Google Sullivan County Board of Elections. It'll take you straight to that page. And then just look on the left-hand column there, or if you're on mobile, scroll down, and you will see political calendar, early voting dates, sample ballots, all of that's available. And in New York, uh, online voter registration is available. You can register to vote or update voter information or just find out if you're already registered or not. Uh, There's a link on your website, and it's also at elections.ny.gov. Again, that's for New York. If you're listening in in Pennsylvania or another state, double-check with your Board of Elections there about the processes because, of course, they vary from state to state, boundary to boundary in some ways. If you haven't figured it out already, I am big on people participating in government, and this is one of the key ways to do it. I encourage everyone who is eligible to vote. I would love to see us get above 50, 60, 70 percent turnout in primaries. Primaries tend to be less, um, but I don't think they're any less important uh, than the general election. This year, of course, we're going to see probably higher than normal turnout just because it's a presidential election year. But I encourage folks to be voting as often as they can on these issues because your vote determines how government is going to to run. Well, and also in a presidential primary, uh, when it seems as if some people may think it's predetermined who mm-hmm. those people running might be in the general, uh, it might discourage folks. But again, you, we encourage folks to go out and vote, exercise your right to vote. Uh, April 2nd is the presidential primary election in New York. Do you recall um, the turnout in uh, you know, or the average turnout that we've been uh, you know averaging here in the county when it comes to elections well it depends primaries are you know in in just the thousands mm-hmm. general elections we tend to get into the ten thousands but the last one if i recall correctly it was about 13 14 thousand people in the last general election and substantially less in the primaries and we have registered voters are well into the 20 might even be uh, up around thirty thousand. so um we we want people to get yeah. out and vote we're trying to make it easier and more convenient to do it but in the end you still have to take the time to vote. It's your right and your duty and responsibility. Vote. Uh, it's a, in privilege. many ways a privilege yeah. when you compare us to the rest of the world. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dan Hoost. He is the Sullivan uh, County Communications Director uh, for Sullivan County Government. Joins us every Friday. Uh, let's uh, get a quick uh, update on Head Start. Sullivan County Head Start had ceased operations a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, an interim agency uh, from the federal government w- yes. was brought in after the previous nonprofit, you know, relinquished the grant. Uh, Where are we in this process to get the Sullivan County Head Start started back up? Yeah, that agency is called CDI, 
they are on site at the different sites in Monticello and Woodburn that Head Start used to operate. Head Start still exists as a nonprofit organization, but it is it has relinquished its contract to run the Head Start program and get the Head Start funding in Sullivan County. So uh, it exists really to reform itself. Uh, at some point, it's supposed to have a reorganizational meeting. I don't think it has had that yet to sort of reform the board and figure out where they're going from there. The you know, longtime executive director, Bertha Williams, is retiring. Um, so there's some decisions they're going to need to make, but that's independent of what the federal government and CDI are doing. CDI is going to be running it uh, with the authority of the federal government. They will not have to be passing anything by the local Sullivan County Head Start board or uh, corporation. Uh, when they'll actually get to reopening, I would expect sometime in March, but I don't want to give anyone false hope. Maybe it could be April. I doubt it would be later than that. Um, I know they're working as fast as they can because they very much understand. Uh, we've worked with them. We're pleased with their response. They understand that this is an urgent issue for these families and for these staff members, many of whom they want to to bring on to continue their work at Head Start. So, that all, though, takes time. You can't just swoop in and uh, a day later restart operations. It, it unfortunately doesn't work that way. So as a county government, we continue to assist those folks. Um, we uh, are helping. There are some teachers, I am sure, who are looking for other employment, and we've been helping them with that. They shouldn't have too much trouble with that. Teachers are very valuable these mm -hmm. days. Um, the families, however, they've had to scramble to take care of child care and, and other matters with their families, and they also are probably already many of them on our social services system. So we want to make sure that we're there for them, uh, especially in this time of need. And thankfully, the state has helped us expedite any applications and processing for extra benefits that they might have needed. So we're stepping up. So has the, the state and uh, federal uh, support been been uh, good in your view uh, to help state, resolve this situation? State support has been outstanding. The... the uh, the federal government is now doing, I think, what it should be doing, but we still, and I think Molinaro was talking about this too, are still trying to find out from them, how did this all happen? You guys are supposed to be keeping track. You know, I know it says Sullivan County Head Start, but Head Start is not a, a county-run uh, thing. They have their own board their own staff, and they are overseen not by the state or the county government, it's by the federal, federal government. Right. But, of course, we were left sort of holding the bag when all of this happened, and we would like to understand not only how this happened, but what are you doing at the federal level to ensure this doesn't happen again, not only in Sullivan County, but any of the other places you oversee. This is very concerning. Yeah, it's still an unanswered question as mm -hmm. to why it happened. I can yes. understand how you know folks have rushed in to try to you know resolve the issue, but you know, the underlying issue is like, w w what was that and, and that still remains to be seen. And I think Molinaro and others are going to continue pushing for those answers because it's important to know what not to do next time. Yes, that's uh, Congressman Mark Molinaro who represents New York's 19th mm -hmm. and, district. And I should say to Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand, they're helping as well. I'm sure they're looking to get answers as well. It's just I heard most recently that Congressman Molinaro was really talking about that. And, and I think the county supports those efforts to get those answers because we don't want to be in this situation again a few well, years down he, the road. Because CDI is only temporary. Well, Congressman so. Molinaro flat out came out and blamed incompetence. Quote, that's a quote for the closure. So again, yeah, I'm, uh, we don't I'm know not what going that is. That I'm well, not going that far on behalf of the county. The county wants to continue working with everyone, but we think it's important to know what happened and how to prevent it from happening again. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back more with Dan Hoost from Sullivan County Government, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. On the TED Radio Hour, New York Times columnist Charles Blow is calling on black Americans to move south, a reverse great migration to vote black politicians into office. I believe that state power is essential to black liberation in this country. New takes on black history. 
That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Friday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. We're talking to Dan Hoos, the Communications Director for Sullivan County Government. He joins us every Friday. Uh, at the beginning of our conversation, we are talking about the, you know, of course, weird, wacky, wild Catskills winter weather, which we all are accustomed to. Uh, something to mention, um, while it's getting up to 48 today, it's going to go down to 25 tonight, only climbs back up to 30 tomorrow, and tomorrow night's low, 14 Another uh, good time to mention that the warming centers in Sullivan County are open and available. Yes, we have them available from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every night of the week, no matter what the temperature is. Through the middle of April, I believe they will be open. They've been being used. And we have them at the United Methodist Church in Liberty, North Main Street in Liberty. It's sort of just uh, across the road from the library and the police station, the village hall, that area. And then our Monticello location is on St. John Street. It's actually the St. John's uh, Episcopal Church, which is just uh, sort of, you can almost see the the county courthouse from there. It's across from the... uh, what I used to call the old Monticello Middle School in the Verizon building on St. John Street. Both of those are staffed by volunteers. We do have contracts with local agencies, including um, uh, the Federation for the Homeless and the Church and stuff to help make sure that it's properly staffed. We've got shelter. Uh, we've got food, uh, a, a warmth, a place to stay, uh, which is important. We uh, unfortunately have continue to have a, an increasing, an alarmingly increasing homeless population. We are well over 250, last I heard, and I remember when we were under 100. Um, and I think it's a lot of, it is the housing issue, the housing crisis in Sullivan County. So these warming centers, even though they're not really designed to be homeless shelters, have become even more important. And I can say that we are very actively working with more that I can announce, hopefully in a few weeks here, on addressing the homeless situation. I was just going to ask, I mean, the legislature had a scheduled day that where they didn't meet yesterday. They'll meet mm-hmm. again next Thursday. But what they're working on the issue. Is there mm-hmm. anything you can tell us? Or we yeah, there's, there's two things we're working on. Um, but the one specifically to, in terms of shelter, uh, the one specifically with homeless would be a, um, a transitional, uh, I think a transitional shelter, we're calling it, where you would stay for a temporary amount of time uh, and then we would work with you to find housing in the community. Of course, we need to have more housing units that are available. So how temporary it will be, I'm not exactly sure that's really been figured out yet. But we're looking to have that in an area that would be very accessible to the services that people need. It could be Liberty, could be Monticello. I don't think it'll be in any other uh, town, but where we would have it actually staffed and it would be a place for homeless folks to go. Of course, we couldn't accommodate even probably a hundred people all at once from the size of this facility. So it's going to be something that is needed, but it won't fully solve the issue. What we really need and what we're working on is to get affordable and low income housing really going here to have yep. it because it's right now it's, it's very easy for a lot of landlords to just say, Hey, I'm not going to deal with all of that. I'm just going to do short term rentals. And they sort of bypass all the long-term tenancy issues and legalities of it. And listen, no one in Sullivan County at this point is saying people can't do what they want with their private property. But we have a growing problem here that we have to address as a community. And we need our landlords involved with that as well because government cannot do it all by itself. And it's, it's, a, it's a state issue. It's a, a wide issue. It's also a nationwide issue as well. Yep. Um, pivoting a bit to uh, some funding available for eligible groups uh, who are helping out with the youth in the area. The Youth Bureau has some funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what kind of funding is available? Who qualifies? They have, uh, they, they usually, let's see, I think they have about uh, between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars. I'd have to look at the budget to see exactly how much they have to give up, uh, give out right now. But it's money that's made available by the legislature through the county budget and it funds youth programming all over Sullivan County. And I'm proud to say it really does it all over Sullivan County from Calicoon to Bloomingburg and Gramsville to Narrowsburg and every place in between. There are programs that are funded every year. Um, the applications are being accepted through March 11th, and they have to be submitted electronically to our 
uh, Youth Bureau um, Coordinator. She's Director of Youth Services, I think is her title, Kristen Kitson, who I've worked for for many years and is excellent at what she does. Um, you need to be, though, a nonprofit, a school, or a municipality. You can't just be an individual saying, hey, I have a great idea to teach kids arts and crafts. You have to do it through uh, a nonprofit. And some nonprofits will work with you if you want to do that kind of thing. Um, they can be like the the fiscal sponsor, if you will, and allowing you to do that. But really, to find out more information, I'd encourage folks who are interested to give Kristen a call at 845-807-0394. That's 807-0394. It'll either be Kristen or Kathy who answers the phone. Either one can answer your questions and help guide you because they want to give out this money. They don't want to be hanging on to it, yeah. but it has to be done in a proper fashion. It's uh, for youth uh, up to 21 years old. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, and the nonprofit, it's for nonprofits, as you said. Uh, it supports uh, in their missions to bring programming to the youth of Sullivan County. And some program examples on the website, uh, not limited to, but includes uh, dance ex- excursions, sporting events, youth recreation, theater, after school programs, summer programming, etc. Yeah, the more creative you are, the more interested we are in hearing from you. Anyway, don't don't think, oh, they'd probably never fund this. Ask us. Okay. Uh, we talked about the weather a little bit. It looks like it'll be a cold day tomorrow for the Snow and W event tomorrow at 10 in Hurleyville. Yes. Again, let's remind folks about Snow and W. It is uh, a snowshoe event. It is if there's enough snow. <laughs> maybe it's just a shoe. You, you know, you could bring event. your snowshoes, but also have your boots maybe with some maybe good traction hike. on them because, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the trail is paved. So if there's no snow, it's not going to be any kind of real muddy mess. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily count on uh, enough snow to snowshoe. We're going to do it anyway. It's at 10 a.m. on the uh, rail trail in Hurleyville. It's called Snow and W. Because the railroad that used to operate on that rail bed was the ONW, the Ontario and Western Railway. Went out of business 1957, I think. And for many, many years, sort of just lay dormant. I'm sure the deer loved using it as a path, but I'm not sure how many other people did. But thankfully, we continued to expand that rail trail network throughout the county. The real crown jewel of it right now is in Hurleyville. And so if you haven't been, or even if you have, I encourage you to come out. We'll probably have some uh, hot chocolate or something else as well. It's free. Um, you can do a um, – the first 20 people to arrive needing equipment will receive a choice of either a free snowshoe or microspike rental. A microspike, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, as long as it's not uh, stepping on my toe, uh, I think <laughs> it's probably very useful out in this weather. So um, otherwise, snowshoe rentals are available for 12 bucks, or you can bring your own. Uh but it's just a wonderful thing we do through our planning division and with Sullivan 180, and uh, I encourage people to go. It'll be fun. And some news about you. Uh, you're going to be presenting uh, in New York City at Google headquarters uh, yes. about uh, adopting their AI. Uh, we talked about a little bit about this uh, AI chatbot that uh, is relatively new here. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Yes, we have. Are you leaving uh, us for the big city day? Just just for the day, (laughs) just for the day. Uh, We had been working now for about two years with Google and their subcontractors uh, to initiate a chatbot on Sullivan County's website. And what that is is something you can click on and ask questions of what, what do I need to get a driver's license? or to file a deed or something else. And we started it out just with the county clerks and treasurer's offices because that's where we get the most phone calls. And after just the first few months of introducing this chatbot, phone call volume in those offices dropped by nearly two-thirds, over 62%, and which was a good thing. It was not that we had people sitting around waiting for things to do. Now we had people working and having the time to work on the real complicated issues that you need a human being for, rather than saying, yes, we're open from this these hours to these hours, and on these days we're located at this uh, spot on the map. The chatbot was able to take care of all of that. Well, Google said, how would you like to expand it? And I was like, hmm. There was a lot of work to get that started. They said, well, we're just about to debut our generative artificial intelligence, generative AI, as it's called, because that was when ChatGPT was really coming out and everyone was talking about this next thing. So Google was scrambling to get their version of this AI technology out there. And they said, how would you like to be a first implementer of it? We said, 
is it going to save us time? Because I don't want to be sitting for hours with departments figuring out every possible question and every possible answer, because that's what we had to do originally. And while obviously we had a great benefit from it, there was a lot of time involved in that. Well, this generative AI learns as it goes. You train it on, say, we I think we came up with about 50 different questions from across our 40 different agencies and said, now, can you learn from this? Well, my goodness, she learned. Uh, we named her Sage, so I call her she. Sage, <laughs> S for Sullivan, AI for artificial intelligence, GE, uh, I don't know, nothing with that, although I, I always like GE, we bring good things to life, you know? <laughs> but that's already copyrighted. So, and Sage just gives the idea that's an imparter of wisdom. So she went live in December, this past December, and now has been answering thousands of questions since then. And Google tells us that we actually may be, they're, they're working on it right now. My phone is hearing me say Google, it's responding to me. <laughs> uh, it, that, we may have been the very first municipality in the nation to engage with this new generative AI technology. So they invited me along with a panel of other folks from like the state and other, uh, other areas in the tri-state area to come down to their offices next Wednesday on the Hudson River and be part of a panel discussion with other municipalities about how to introduce AI into what you do. That's great. Congratulations. So, mm -hmm. so cutting edge here. Yeah, it's really cool. That's very cool. Another cutting edge thing before we go, just uh, quickly, uh, yes. food scrap recycling program. Yes. Let's mention. We hit over 300. Yes. We're at 307. Nice. Thank you all who have listened and signed up. <laughs> Tell other... <laughs> <laughs> Tell other people to sign up as well. Just give a call to our recycling coordinator, Cassie Thelman, 845-807-0291, 807-0291. We want to get to that 400 mark, and it's within sight. He's not a chatbot. He's the real thing. Dan Hoost <laughs> here in person every Friday. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We'll take a break. And when we come back, farmers of color face greater challenges when it comes to agriculture. Radio Catskill, Marin Scotton will have more with a Delaware County farmer. This is Radio Chatskill. On this week's Wait, Wait, Ray Romano talks about watching himself with his sitcom wife while sitting with his real wife. And she said to me, she goes, you said more to Patty Heaton in that scene than you've said to me all week. <laughs> and, yeah, and I told her... We have writers. It's easy. Uh, I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for the show that takes real life and makes it funnier. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. Hi there. This is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. An equity commission created by the U.S. Department of Agriculture has released over 60 recommendations. It says we'll finally bring more fairness to policies affecting farming and rural America. For black farmers, a number of discriminatory barriers have historically made farming challenging. In the last century, black farmers have lost over 90% of the land they once owned. And today, just 1% of American farmers are black. Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton spoke to Amawale Adewale, the co-owner of Liberation Farm in Delaware County, to talk about his experience getting denied a loan by the USDA and his hopes for a more equitable future in American agriculture. In a food system that lends itself to large-scale producers, retailers, and corporations, being a small-scale farmer isn't easy. For Black farmers, there are even more barriers to making a living growing food. Omawale Adewale is a farmer and co-owner of Liberation Farm, opened in 2021 and is entirely vegan, producing 100% organic food. What kind of guides us is um, Black food and land sovereignty. So just being able to control, you know, um, the food that's come into the community, uh, oftentimes, you know, we'll go out and, you know, maybe want to get okra, you know, and so okra might not be, you know, growing in all the different, you know, spaces, but there might be a lot of some, you know, other particular produce, right? So just having more variety, being 
you know, feeling like I want to get CMOS, you know, um, so I want to have that relationship, you know, with um, Jamaican farmers, but also it, it such a connection, you know, just, you know, uh, decades of Jamaican farmers living near, you know, black American farmers, um, of black Americans, you're going to find that, you know, they, that's going to rub up on us. That's going to educate our, you know, our community. So that, you know, our neighborhood is going to need those particular cultural foods mm-hmm. that, that we value. And so that what's kind of, you know, kind of guides us in, you know, in our direction. So this is just having that understanding. We also, we do Black Veg Fest and we've been doing that, uh, since 2018. And that's just basically trying to take it into our own hands, uh, be accountable. How do we actually, you know, get information, quality food information, you know, to our community, help them make, you know, um, you know, great decisions, you know, in different options. So we approach, um, veganism, we approach it from a way of giving the information, uh, not necessarily, you know, pushing in, but suggesting that more fruits and vegetables, you know, over, uh, animal produce. Though they've become a pillar in feeding their community, the past couple years haven't been easy for Liberation Farm. Adewale and his wife, Nadia Muib, applied for a farm service agency microloan of $50,000 at the Cortland County Office of the United States Department of Agriculture, also known as the USDA. The microloan program is dedicated to financing the needs of small beginning farmers, niche and non-traditional farm operations. They needed the money to help pay for a tractor accident the previous summer, on top of other costs. But on November 17th, Liberation Farm was notified they were denied the loan. So, uh, you know, my my wife and I was also, you know, partnering with Liberation Farm uh, with 50-50 in our partnership. You know, we both just felt like, you know, like exasperated. They've messed with our emotions, you know, quite a bit. And it made, made us feel like, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So, and, and just knowing that this has just been, you know, you know, historic, you know, situation, it's, um, it's very jarring. Uh, and it, it's, it really makes you call the entire system in, you know, into question. Adewale and Weeb are not alone in their experience. According to USDA data, from 2018 to 2023, the national rejection average for farm service agency loans, which is an agency of the USDA, was 8%. But for Black farmers, it was 35%. In New York State, the rejection rate was 23% for white farmers, compared to 66% for Black farmers. The USDA has a long and documented history of discrimination towards Black farmers, denying them access to loans, grants, and other forms of assistance, which has contributed to a significant decline in Black-owned farms. In 1920, there were nearly 1 million Black farmers nationwide. Today, there are around 40,000. It's it's important to to point out for, you know, anyone who, you know, sees this is that farmers generally will go to the USDA for FSA loan Mm -hmm. um, because it's not a traditional financial institution. And so where that'd be more stringent, you know, harder, you know, for you to get the funds that you need. And of course, you know, if you're in agriculture, you kind of need, you know, those resources for different equipment, you know, food costs, because food has to grow, you know, even if folks are engaged through livestock, it has to grow. So you have to get that, you know, that funding in early. As a farm season can be so uncertain, Access to resources and grants like the FSA loans are crucial to farms staying afloat. Without them, one bad season or accident can take a huge financial toll. If they, we don't have the food, you know, as, as, as farmers, then they have to get it, you know, somewhere else. And so I think the system then depends on that. And then that becomes the same cycle. So anytime there's a breakup or a, a, a mix up, you know, down there where somebody is, you know, entrepreneur down, um, and, and they don't hire that many people. And now their business has the, you know, tank that food, you know, is then going to just go to start going to a pantry, go on to the supermarket, you know, again. And so it doesn't become dependable. So now on black farmers, we can't be dependable, dependent upon, you know, by a supermarket. 
You see, we can't be dependent on, uh, by a supermarket right. because we're not going to get the resources. Most of, almost a hundred percent of the resources go to livestock, go to, uh, white farmers who do livestock. Not wanting to give up, Liberation Farm took their case to the National Court of Appeals. On February 7th, their case was approved for a trial. They hope not only to win the appeal, but that the case will raise awareness and eventually lead to a more equitable future for other Black farmers. We want publicity, you know, on this particular issue. More publicity on the issue, but we want to make it usable data. So in when I say usable data, I mean that folks first get educated. And then they actually make steps to make these particular changes. And so some of these changes could be, you know, uh, really affecting policy. We talk yeah. to our legislators, you know, uh, from the local level up to, you know, to ground level as well. Uh, communicate with, um, USDA, join some of these committees, you know, and, and, and have a mindset that, you know, we want to at least be more equitable with the, the distribution of, you know, resources. So that's what we're, we're trying to do. So it's not just for liberation, you know, liberation farm. Uh, but you know, for us in the short run, we want to be able to pay our bills. We want to be able to pay our bills. Uh, we want to see, you know, that, that it's, it's more fair assessment that that's happening. Race kind of keeps you down, but people think that you want to be there. That's the problem. People think that you want to discuss race. Like you have to. Um, I, I feel like my main issue should be like everyone's main issue, which should be focused on climate change. Right now, I'd rather be, you know, discussing climate change, uh, not race. I'd rather be focusing on bees, increasing the bees, but not being a beekeeper, just having more flowers out there, just having more ways to, you know, to grow on um, the bee population and leave the bee population alone. Um, uh, being able to, you know, just kind of learn more, you know, I feel like I don't know enough. Uh, so I want to learn more, you know, about more, you know, fungi. I want to learn more, you know, ab about, uh, horticulture. I, I want to learn more about these, you know, different elements, you know, what particular plant I want to go forage and know what to eat and what not to eat. You know, I want to find that, you know, on, on the land. I want to focus on, you know, you know, cultural, you know, uh, issues. I feel like I can't, I can't focus on cultural issues if the political issues keep rearing its head. I, I would rather focus on, you know, social, you know, bonding, you know, within my community. Would love to, you know, address some of these issues, be able to um, heal, discuss them, the pain, you know, that we have generational, you know, issues that are happening, you know, there. But in a cultural, in a cultural set, setting, in a black cultural, you know, setting, you know, discussing some of those things and learn more about other cultures and find out about other cultures and see where the similarities are. Along with winning the appeal, Adewale hopes this year Liberation Farm can continue to provide nutritious food and act as a place of gathering and education for the Black community. You know, we would love for folks, you know, to, to support, you know, Black farmers, you know, um, you know, produce. We, you know, we do a, a long you know, list of produce, you know, touch our herbs, our, you know, our tomatoes, you know, we grow beets, you know, we do that because we want to, you know, bring down heart disease. Uh, it levels are up. Hypertension. I've had, I was diagnosed with hypertension when I was 15 years old. And, and so just learning, you know, uh, about how to do that, what particular foods that we, we can use, uh, is important in it, in it, in it's key, you know, more green. So we do, you know, we do kale, we do, uh, collard greens, you know, red lettuce. You know, it's a number of, uh, you know, foods that, you know, we're looking to grow, um, this year, including watermelon as well. Talk about the history. So we also, I mean, I think this cultural value and educating folks about the food, you know, why food, you know, exists. There's a reason why tomatoes, you know, uh, was, you know, first food to be, you know, GMO. So just giving folks that particular education, you know, is, is important. Why is, you know, why corn is the number one, you know, produced food, you know, in the U.S. Everything has, there's a context, there's information, you know, um, and, and this not to attack any of the, you know, the farmers, but it just shows that who's actually benefiting, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and this not to attack any of the, you know, the farmers, but it just shows that 
who's actually benefiting, mm -hmm. you know, who's benefiting from, from the resources and who, who's not benefiting from the resources. Even as a downhill, we don't have any businesses in the black community that's going down where we're still making, you know, lots of money. Mm -hmm. It's just not a thing. No one does that. That was Omawale Adewale, the co-owner of Liberation Farm. In Liberty, I'm Marin Scotton for Radio Catskill. Thanks to Marin Scotton, uh, Radio Catskill student journalist for that report. We'll take a break, and when we come back, the Americana band Driftwood. This is Radio Catskill. Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl. And the fastest growing group is under 19. Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County. Whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan and Ulster. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent grassroots global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Driftwood is an Americana folk rock band from Binghamton that was formed in 2005. The group consists of Dan Forsyth, Joe Collar, Claire Byrne, Joey Arcuri, and Sam Fishman. If you're familiar with the Americana music scene, you know the band tours consistently and puts on an energetic live show. Music on the Delaware is presenting Driftwood in concert at the historic Walton Theater stage tomorrow at 7.30. I spoke with band member Claire Byrne about their music and how Driftwood got their start. Um, I've been with the band for 16 years, um, but I am not an original member. We were actually just um, discussing this with a bio writer the other day, and we realized that um, Dan and Joe have been playing music together for um, approaching 30 years, since since the, the late 90s, like 97, 98, um, which is pretty incredible. They met in high school and realized that they both played music and, and liked the same kinds of music. And um, so the friendship formed out of that, as did the band. Um, and they had a, a few different bands, rock bands and, and jam bands. And then uh, they both got the bluegrass bug and... Um, they started a five-piece group with um, some of uh, kids, some kids that Joe went to college with. He went to Berkeley out in Boston, um, and I I used to go and see them play actually back at the Cyber Cafe. Um, yeah, long time ago, two thousand five, <laughs> two thousand six, um, and eventually our paths crossed um, at a really great time. They sort of were going through a shift with the band. Everybody was graduating college and sort of figuring out where they were going to go. And um, we met through a mutual friend. Um, and we've been playing together since 2008. And uh, touring and uh, releasing several albums. But you guys talk about how COVID really impacted the band, especially you. Um, we're talking to you at home and folks might be able to hear the kids in the background. You, uh, yeah. you had just become a mother when this all happened. And, and you say that prior to the shutdown, your life had revolved around Driftwood and life on the road. And you were having a bit of an identity crisis. Oh, I sure was. <laughs> I mean, I think every musician that was out there working and touring, and really everybody, you know, not just the musicians, um, when that shutdown happened, it was like, whoa, okay. And you had to adjust big time. But um, we're, you know, just constantly in motion for our job. And so just being at home was uh, was a real change. Um and uh, a blessing in disguise in a way. I had a baby um, at the end of 2019. So he was uh, almost 12 weeks old on, when the lockdown happened. And we got a lot of time together, which was um, really awesome. And I had another one then during the, during the whole pandemic. Um, but yeah, I was essentially a stay-at-home mom. I went from uh, a touring musician to a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> and so it was pretty intense. Um, but it was, it was really healthy. You know, when I look back at that, I'm, I'm 
you know, sort of, I'm grateful for that time that I had at home um, and that time to sort of um, sink into a new identity as a mom. Um, I don't think I would have given myself that time if uh, it had not been forced upon me. And, um, and in hindsight, it was, it was, a, it was a, a special time with the kids at home. Um, and I think the whole band has definitely felt that way. We would never have taken a break. So when that lockdown happened, um, there were a lot of bands that continued to do what they were doing, you know, on social media and try and keep the momentum um, going and the fans engaged. And we were just like, all right, uh, talk to you guys in about a year. <laughs> we, we really needed a break. You guys needed the break. Yeah, it. yeah. We didn't even realize it and we never would have taken one. Um, and so it was a blessing in disguise uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. And when you came back uh, after shutdown, you began working on your new album, December Last Call, which is coming out next month, I think? It's coming out on March 22nd. Yes, it's our sixth album, our sixth studio album, which is uh, incredible. It feels so, great. So how did how did having that break influence this next uh, album? Um, well, it influenced it quite a bit. We did a lot of songwriting um, throughout that period of time. Um, and so the songs are a little bit different. Um, they're definitely about different things. You know, uh, I have uh, a few songs about um, becoming a mom on there. Um, there's songs about, you know, kind of being alone and wishing things would go back to the way they were. Um, so it, it definitely, uh, the album shaped uh, quite a bit up, um, around the, our our lives during the pandemic. You know, as songwriters, we... Well, sometimes, you know, take a, take an idea and be like, I'm going to write a song about a person that does this and, and that. And, and we get some really cool songs from that. But a lot of the time, um, we just write from the heart about what's happening in our own lives. Um, so the songs are pretty personal and, um, and some of them are a little deep. You share songwriting duties with some other folks in the band as well? Joe Kohler and Dan Forsyth. So, yeah. And Joey Arcuri writes songs too. He's, he's just started, he actually, he started writing. Um, he had written a little bit before the pandemic, but during that time at home, he really got into songwriting. So he's been writing too. And that's been great to hear his style. Um, but we have, we're the three that have the songs on the album. There's a line in your bio on the website, driftwoodtheband.com, that says, There are certainly some desperate elements at play reminiscent of other well-known multi-singer bands when you have people sharing vocal and songwriting duties. <laughs> yes, yeah. There's lots of different bands that have a lot of different songwriters. But, you know, a band um, that comes to mind that has, like, a female and two different males and, and, the, and really different sounds, um, the, set, the songs can sound really different. I think Fleetwood Mac has a lot of those elements um they actually have two female songwriters but um you know you'll go you'll put on rumors and each song can really sound like an entirely different band um which i think is really cool how do you describe the band you know there's uh, americana folk rock how do you guys d- see the band and describe it mm, that's hard um I guess we're probably an indie rock band at this point, indie folk rock, if we could get more specific. Um, these labels are so hard, right? What is yeah. an indie rock band? There's, there's like, you know, kind of a, a broad spectrum of writing even in that term. Um, but we definitely, we used to be, when I joined the band, we were certainly the closest we would ever be to bluegrass, although I don't think we were even a bluegrass band back then. Um we were very folky, very rootsy, um, and the evolution of the band has been definitely towards more of a rock and roll vibe. We have a drummer. We've had drummers for years now. Um, Dan and Joe are both playing electric guitar a lot of the time, um, but we maintain some elements of our folk, um, our folk uh, beginnings. Like we, we always have the upright bass. We always have the fiddle. Um, I don't know that we'll ever ask Joey to, to play an electric bass. Um, I think that would really that would really change it a lot, um, and maybe not for the better. I think that that the the upright brings so much to it. Um, so we've evolved a lot, and that's where I think we go to that indie rock kind of thing, um, indie folk rock, because um, the elements of the song the song being at the heart of it, you know, the songwriting, the lyrics, that keeps it super folky. But we have the electric guitars, the drums. 
things like that. Your second single from the new album, December Last Call, is out. It's called Every Which Way But Loose. And again, the new album coming out March 22nd. Um, mm-hmm. And you alluded to it a little earlier. Just how do you kind of look back at this as you're anticipating this new album coming out? You guys have been together for so long and see this evolution together. What's this moment like for you? Um, it's a long time coming. It took us two years to record this album. Um, and so in some ways, um, it's, it feels, it feels, it, you know, every album sort of feels like you, in a way you, you, it's like, uh, having a baby. You've worked on it. You've thought about it. You know, you've spent all this time, uh, prepping. Um, uh, and then it finally, you finally released your album. Um, I think in some ways though, we worked on this one for so long, um, that, I'm also a little bit like, all right, I'm ready for this to be ready for this album to be out and get to going on to new material and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but it always, there's always an excitement around it an anticipatory feeling, um, and a feeling of, of like, it's like your baby in a way. Although I will say this baby, because it's taken us so long is more like your college kid, <laughs> post-college kid that's still living in the basement. And you're like, okay, <laughs> time to go. And your kids, they're, uh, they're, you said they're four and two. Uh, how do they feel about mom's music? Um, you know, uh, they're still so little that they, <laughs> they... They're still so little that they... Um, I mean, I think it's very much so, okay, this is just what mom does, and maybe some someday they'll realize not every mom is doing this. Um, but... Uh, I don't really know that they have too much of uh, too much thoughts about it. It's just their norm um, <laughs> that we do this. Um, yeah, you know, they're just kids. They just want the attention. I picked up the guitar this morning and they said, I hate music. No more music. You know, which I know is not actually true, but they just want attention. Um, and I'll wave to them from the stage if they come. They don't come too often to a show, but if there's a show that they can come to, I'll be so excited that they're there and, and they're like just looking to play with something. <laughs> so, so maybe someday in the future we'll, you know, get to have more conversations about music and how they feel about it and whether they like the show and do they like the song. Maybe they'll write you a, a hot track too. <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be great. Yeah, but now it's just it's just business as usual for them. Well, business as usual for Driftwood on tour, going to be at the Walton Theater, February 24th. There's more information about that at musiconthedelaware.org and more information about Driftwood the Band at driftwoodtheband.com. Claire Byrne, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck with the show. Good luck with the tour. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed chatting. And that's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. On Monday, local reaction to the farm bill delay. The U.S. Farm Bill is a package of legislation that gets passed approximately every five years, and it more or less shapes the landscape of American agriculture. It expired at the end of last year, and the congressional clock is ticking as the ag industry watches to see if a new farm bill is doable this season. We'll hear from Brett Habig at Two Creek Farm in Pennsylvania about his reaction to that delay. That's all for this edition. Again, uh, you can hear our show and all of our local programming at our website, wjffradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org. This week in This American Life, a former addict, former thief, ex-con, returns to the scene of his crimes to coach Little League, trying to give back. These are tough street kids, and the first day of practice, they act up, don't listen. He yells, tells them about his time in the penitentiary, which turns out to be a mistake. They just make fun of him. Then on the second day, well, listen. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. 
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming live at WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. Coming up next, it's On Point, and it's Friday. Science Friday starts at 2. The forecast for the region, areas of patchy fog early today, then cloudy, maybe some clearing in the afternoon, high 48. Clearing tonight, or cloudy tonight, uh, overnight, low 25. Tomorrow, 30 is the high. Uh, winds up to 20 miles an hour, uh, partly cloudy. Tomorrow night, mostly clear, low of 14. And then for Sunday, mostly sunny, high 42. The low Sunday night, around 30. You're listening to Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville. W233AH Monticello. 